because we're all revolutionaries and conservatives in some matter. Like mm-hmm. you're conservative about something, and you're mm-hmm. revolutionary about something. Hello, Internet. You are listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, and I lift weights and read Moby Dick, which, according to a tweet I saw the other day, solves all your problems. Um, <laughs> I I forget who tweeted it. I shared it. If you go to my Twitter, it's there. It's, it says... Literally all your problems disappear if you lift weights and read Moby Dick. Um, and I think that probably overstates it, but I have been lifting weights since August and I'm about halfway through Moby Dick right now. And you know what? It's not wrong. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not entirely wrong, at least. Um, as a friend on Facebook put it, the secret to happiness is to get fit and to make peace with the fact that you will never control nature or something like that. Um, so I think that's good advice. Um, for this episode, I am very excited about the guest I managed to snag. Uh, hip-hop artist Sho Baraka, uh, probably best known for his album The Narrative, uh, which is a masterpiece, came out about eh, seven years ago, I think. Wow, that was a long time ago. Um <laughs> Anyway, I had my producer, Blake, reach out to show and um, ask him if he would like to come on the show. I really didn't think he would uh, give us the time of day. Uh, but he said, yeah, I'd love to come on. And what I want to talk about is how I used to be sold on the ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, but I've kind of come around to appreciating the perspective of Booker T. Washington as well. Now, obviously, those were two very prominent um, black civil rights activists uh, around the turn of the 20th century, and um, they both had a lot of really fascinating things to say. If you're unfamiliar with their work, you'll probably be fine because show goes into a lot of detail about what they believed and wrote in our conversation. Um, so I will go ahead and let him familiarize you with the works of W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. I will flip you over to our conversation, and I will see you on the other side. Show, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Show, of course, is a fairly successful uh, artist in the Christian hip-hop world. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's told me. Ah, man. Um, You're trying to change my mind. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how big of a hit the narrative was when it came out. What I do know is that like everybody in my online circle was talking about it. And I thought it was well-deserved. Like that is a masterpiece of an album. Um, Oh man. So, (laughs) so I am very excited to have you on the show. Um, I mean, you know, you, you move in the same circles as Lecrae, right? So that's fame by association at the very least. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I get to hold his luggage. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm blessed. I'm a blessed man. 
Um, anything else that uh, listeners need to know about you before we, before we get started? I just recently, I recently uh, released a book last year called He Saw That It Was Good. That's right. Um, and uh, yeah, that is really it. I mean, I, I recently got into, I'm an adjunct professor, and so I teach hip hop and religion, uh, uh, religion and politics through hip hop at a couple universities. But I mean, that's really, I don't bore people. Yeah, right on. Because because this is audio, they aren't able to see how strikingly handsome I am. But, that's <laughs> but apart well, from that, those are the those are the important details. If you want to know how strikingly handsome show is, there is of course Google image search at your fingertips. Yeah. So some of those older pictures don't don't trust them. Just a newer, <laughs> newer more seasoned individual. <laughs> I actually, I don't know if I'd seen any pictures of you since you grew the dreads and I'm, I'm pretty yeah. impressed by the, uh, good, good. Stay away from those. <laughs> right on. Okay. Well, um, I had my producer just reach out to you a while ago, just because I really like to have uh, hip hop artists on the show because they are very good at telling stories. Um, and, you know, we just kind of, kind of reached out and said, well, what would you like to come on and talk about? And, um, what you said to him, I believe, was that you wanted to uh, talk about how you've kind of moved from preferring uh, W.E.B. Du Bois to uh, Booker T. Washington to kind of pivoting a little bit and trying to maybe kind of understanding where Booker T. was coming from at the very least. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not going to claim <laughs> to be an expert on these guys. Um, I've read a bit by and about them. Um, obviously, both were you know, very well-known civil rights activists, activists around the turn of the 20th century. Um, my general impression is W.E.B. was a little bit more, you know, revolutionary, you know, equal rights for Black people now, whereas uh, Booker T. was a little more, I want to say a little more Burkean about things, a little more okay with incremental change. I think his thing was generally Black people should seek economic independence first and then maybe worry about civil and political rights. Um, but that's kind of my general impression of it. Why don't you, um, why don't you kind of give listeners kind of the five or 10 minute version of uh, the differences between those two guys? Yeah, so I, I would say you did a great job of giving a, a foundational uh, paradigm of what, what what they were wrestling with at the time. The boys, well, let me say Booker T was um, is, was older. He was born actually a slave uh, right. or to slave parents, and so you know I think the one thing you have to understand is the per the, the perspective in which they're coming from. Um, mm. So full disclosure, I went to Tuskegee University, which was a university that. Um, Booker T. Washington was the president of. Right. And so we were forced with the praise and the uh, the adoration of Booker T. Washington as the moment you step on campus. <laughs> and so <laughs> you have to read Up From Slavery your freshman year. I don't know if they still do that, but when I was there, you definitely had to do that. Hmm. Um, so you you know of Du Bois, you hear his name, but you're, you know. But there are some professors there who tend to be more Du Boisian, if you will. But yeah, and, uh, so, and, uh, correct ahead. me if I'm correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to trying to draw some connections because I am, you know, obviously white and obviously not from the South. Um, I don't know if that's obvious, but <laughs> I'm not. Um, but um, I think um, the 
Tuskegee and Booker T, those are what Ralph Ellison was writing about in the novel Invisible Man when he talks about, he just calls them the school and the founder, I think. Um, But yeah. Yeah. So if if listeners have read that novel, that's kind of the vibe. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Ralph Ellison didn't think highly of (laughs) of the founder or the school and the community, um, which I think also colors the time period in which Ellison and a lot of uh, his counterparts in the 30s and 40s were wrestling with and what it mean to, you know, what, what is it, what is, what is black liberation look like? What does it mean to be equal? What is uplift? What is this new kind of like uh, Negro burgeoning movement and how do we seek liberation? And the, the one thing that I think anyone who cares to read and research about black liberation, black civil rights from the time uh, the first Africans crossed the Atlantic is, is that there's always been a, a divergence of opinions on how to address, if some will say, the Negro problem. Sure. And so um, the boys in Washington seem to be a more polarizing case study up until you get to around the 60s where you'll have Market, Malcolm and, and Martin's kind of mm-hmm. varying perspectives. Um, but I'll also say Du Bois never <laughs> never seemed to hold his tongue. He had problems with everybody. <laughs> so <laughs> he he was very intelligent and he liked to let people know he was intelligent. Sure. So uh so Booker T and a lot of this to your to your introduction, yeah, you know, he had this uplift and he spoke um at the Atlanta exposition he has a speech called the Atlanta Compromise is basically saying hey look white people need to know that if you just give us in the light of lynching in the light of racial animus and racial terror if you'll just leave us alone I will guarantee in some ways (laughs) I will try my best to to create environments where black people will will help themselves and not ask too much politically and mm-hmm. socially from you. Um, and so that is the very elementary view of what Du Bois was 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 propagating. Um, du Bois comes along later and he says, well, that's not enough, that's insufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to to not only ask of 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 our you know our white brothers and sisters in this country, but we also need to figure out how to not just teach people as the as Booker T, agrarian, uh, industrial kind of hand to 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 ground work. We need to get these folks in classical intellect, like you know, teach them languages, mm-hmm. philosophy, sociology. We need to to become elite in our education. And so it wasn't just their political views; it was also the educational views that were in opposition to one another. Um, as you can imagine, one being from the South, another one being from the North, although, you know, Booker T was from Virginia, was born in Virginia, which you, you know, debate on how mm-hmm. South you feel. But yeah, so, but most of his work is known to be in in great opposition to Black thriving. And Booker T, being a graduate of Fisk, Harvard, being a you know, doctoral student at Harvard, has a very different view of how Black people are to ascend. And so that kind of frames this discussion. So for me, going to Tuskegee, 
hearing about Booker T, also being a, a Western kid, someone who grew up in California, whose parent was a Black Panther, mm. I'm already in some I'm already somewhat informed by a more radical revolutionary view. Sure. I just knew I wanted to go to an HBCU. Um, and so I attended HBCU. I'm getting indoctrinated with this Booker T love. The moment I really get a hold of some Du Bois, uh, I, I fall in love because I'm like, yes, that's revolutional language to me. That's revolutionary mm -hmm. ideas. And so I dive into Du Bois. I'm like, oh, yes, talented tenth. Yes, double consciousness, the soul of Negroes. Um, and I don't want to, you know, let me kind of explain some of these concepts without just assuming people understand. So the talent, well, let me go with double consciousness first. Uh, double consciousness was this idea that Black people know themselves in, under, in, in relation to how other people view them. So it's not just I know who I am, mm -hmm. but I also have to know who I am in relation to what other people think about me. Sure. Um, and so Du Bois kind of teases this out in his work the uh and the um uh, the solar negroes and then later he kind of adopts this philosophy called the talent of the 10th which wasn't his but it became his pretty much philosophy because of who he was and his stature was this idea is that not only do we need to get away from like the carpentry the industrial you know the uh the um I have the, the the phrase is losing me but basically the the kind of work that du bois is trying to instill in people in the south he's like what we need to do is give our time our effort and our talent our treasure to the top 10 percent of american society mostly men and allow those folks to raise up the rest of society uh, because they're exceptional they, they are the exception and you're talking about black society specifically there yes yes, yes. okay so black, okay yeah, yeah yeah so how do we give our time our resources to the exceptional 10% of black society and allow them to raise up the rest of us. And so that's the talent is as if. And so for me, I was like, well, yeah, I'm part of that, ten that talent and 10th. I'm exceptional. I'm brilliant. <laughs> so he's talking to me. <laughs> and so as I got older, um, I, be you know, I, I head first into Du Bois' philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you just want me to keep rambling, if there's some questions or <laughs> you want me to just say, all right, Joe, so where's the turn? Where's the pivot? Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get there, we'll get there eventually. Um, I do want to hear a little bit more about you being raised by Black Panthers, because I was honestly not aware of that. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. So my parents <laughs> um, grew up in Southern California. And, uh, well, my mom, uh, my father had no parts of the Black Panther. He was an athlete. He was like, I'm just trying to get to the league. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These Afros and berets getting away of that, then I'm cool. I'm, I'm, I don't do <laughs> So my mother, on the other hand, was um, an activist by proximity, if you will. I think she, she will say that she was a part of the movement, but she, for the most part, was there because of boys and guys and just the... Uh, just wanting to be a part of something. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what happens is, is once you're around something that a, that a aroma kind of jumps on you. And so it stuck mm -hmm. with her. And as she began to raise children, she gave us all Swahili names. Uh, my name is Amisho, uh, brother named Hati. So, you know, my middle name is Baraka, uh, which means to be blessed, uh, to be a blessing. And so that was kind of one of the things that she used. She was like, we're gonna, we're, we're, we're changing the identity of our family by our names. When I grew up, um, the types of projects and the uh, reading assignments that 
she would encourage was often black uh, literature, Harlem Renaissance stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was like, you're not about to come here and do a, a project on MLK. Everybody does projects on MLK. Pick somebody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. So that kind of created an indelible impact in me as I grew up. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to go to HBCU because of the things that my mother instilled in me and other family members. Uh, my father as well. My father wasn't as militant, but he would take us to classics, which were HBCU football games that happened in other states because on the West Coast, you don't have HBCUs. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, so it, you, that type of environment, Black consciousness, a concern for justice, being very alert to racial prejudice and animus, those things were 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 prevalent within our house. And so um, it's no coincidence that I kind of am the individual I am today because of how I was raised and the type of information that passed through our house. This uh, com- coming around to uh, to Booker T's point of view, was that something that happened during your college years or was that, was that much later? No, that, much later, much, <laughs> much later. Uh, actually in 2012, uh, I, or 20, 2012, 2013, I'm getting old, so I forget. I released an album called Talent of 10th. Sure. And so on, on the album Talent of 10th, as I've kind of explained what the Talent of 10th is, I, I kind of adopted it from um, purely a sociological posture to more to a social spiritual problem. Like, here's how I think Christians should view engagement to the world, not necessarily the elitist posture that I think a lot of people would say the boys and other proponents of the talented have, but more so like what for those people who have time, talent and treasure, discretionary time, talent and treasure, how are you using it? Mm-hmm. And are you using it for the benefit of others? And so most evangelicals just call it discipleship, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so here's this idea of discipleship in which the boys kind of adopted it from, from the Northern Baptist Missions uh, Institution or organization as well, um, from his kind of religious learnings early in his life, I am, as he kind of took, he, he took a project, he created a progeny from something, I am doing the same thing. It's like, how do I take this philosophy and idea and I made this album, and one of the lines in the album, I say, there isn't much Booker T when you look at me, but a whole lot of Du Bois making noise. Um, and so I was all in. I was, I was a Du Bois disciple. <laughs> I think um, it was a few years after that. Just expanding my reading, expanding my literature, and, and here's the, the what I will say. I won't say that I've completely come over all the way to Booker T, but I I realized there are some areas in which he emphasizes that Du Bois doesn't emphasize that I think are pivotal for Black liberation today. Okay, can you talk about that? Yeah, so in my book, I talk about um, what is liberation. And I am, one of these days, I hope this these components blow up because I just think it's brilliant. <laughs> I'm, I'm being very much Du Boisian right now. Kind of like, <laughs> Kanye West, we're all from the same kind of family tree. <laughs> if I look, uh, if you look at a lot of, you know, oftentimes Black liberation theology, Cone, 
Howard Thurman, a lot of these individuals who um, came between the 40s and the 70s um, and, and tethered their religious ideologies to Black struggle and oppression, they oftentimes tie it to the Exodus and Moses. Mm -hmm. And there's this connection. And, I, and I, in my studying of not only them, but the Exodus narrative, and just seeing why are Black people still in a lot of tense situations today, economically, sociologically, spiritually, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing I see with liberation in the, the uh, Exodus narrative, as well as somewhat of in history and why we probably haven't progressed, is first you see leadership, right? So there's this calling for someone to be a liberator or someone's to be liberators of a people group um, mm -hmm. and, or just how do you lead and speak truth to power mm -hmm. so we need people to speak truth to power so i just call it leadership the second thing is, is the goal is to lead those individuals towards a land to get them out of an oppressive place mm. um now that can actually be acres that can be square footage that can be a political state we've seen that with israel right in the 40s mm -hmm. the, the moving of the year from europe to to uh back to a political state we've seen that in many different places so mm -hmm. you're moving people and we see it in the exodus you're moving people from egypt to the promised land because you need to remove people from the psychological oppression as well as its physical oppression mm -hmm. The next thing you see is that you see laws are established, right? Well, there, there's a way in which people lived before under, under Pharaoh, but now we need new laws. We need new leadership. And then lastly, the goal is to leave legacy. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so I say all that to say that there's been times in Black history where I think there have been two or three or, or maybe, you know, or one of those components, maybe two of those components, and maybe even three of those, but never all four. Mm. And I think there's often been leaders who speak truth to power, mm. who've called us out of a particular oppressive state. There's often been laws and ideas that say, hey, we probably should think differently mm. about the way in which we exist and do life with one another. There's, there's for the most part, to some degree, also been legacy. Like, all right, here's what I want to pass down. Here's some ideas, some something tangible for you to have. The one thing that I think we've often failed at is land. Mm. And I I believe that's where Booker T was trying to, I, I, not only was he trying to institute, but I think he did much better than Du Bois. And mm. that oftentimes when, People talk about land, they only just think of like the, you know, the actual terrain in which we live. Mm -hmm. But I also see that as institutions, institutional mm -hmm. building. If we really castigate the narrative of Black history, the one thing that has often escaped us, oftentimes escaped us, is the endurance of institutions that are ran by Black people. Hmm. And Du Bois um, left us a lot of ideological or, or or intellectual property but he wasn't great with leaving actual brick and mortar or institutions well there's Tuskegee other, right or, or no you're talking about the boys sorry <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah, keep yeah, going. yeah but on the other side Booker T I think 
actually did a good job of that with his influence with Lincoln, his mm-hmm. influence with Hampton, his, you know, Tuskegee. But none of that, teaching people how to own the land mm-hmm. and, and work. And I also feel like there's a disconnect there between Du Bois and Booker T that I've grown to love is that especially in Black communities, we run so much to the urban epicenters. We, we want to be mm-hmm. in urban dense areas a lot of that is because of the type of work that's available there Mm. but a lot of that is also because of what the urban uh what the uh the epicenters offer too and a lot of times it it the allure is much greater than the actual reward and um technology working with our our minds uh and this is not just a black problem i think this is american work and vocational problem today Mm. is the the celebration of mental work and the degradation of physical labor. Absolutely. And so Booker T in a lot of ways, I think one of the things that I've kind of moved over is this healthy balance of people need to honor the work of our hands. Hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you think about the agrarian Bedouin lifestyle, that's how a lot of people own property. That's how they survive off the land. That's think about, uh, farmers, you think about food distribution, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you think about a lot of these companies who grow and build and institutions that grow and build, a lot of them started in outside of urban epicenters. So I think Booker T was onto something in light of, yeah, maybe we're not going to be aggressive with pushing towards political equality, but there's something about individual affirmation and identity affirmation and seeing people's uh seeing individuals as someone who can create their own wealth and opportunity without an expectation for pharaoh to save you and Mm. i think oftentimes what intellectuals Mm -hmm. get tripped up on is this desire to get a seat at the table or expect pharaoh to have some compassion but the oppressor is never (laughs) going to be compassionate when they benefit from your oppression and so hopefully that's enough for you to kind of continue to come in. i don't know but yeah <laughs> i mean i think there there always is kind of that tension right between radicalism on the one hand and kind of small c conservatism on the other right of like absolutely it's i mean if these institute you know there are institutions causing harm we need to tear down those institutions but when you tear down an institution you're just creating a vacuum and there's always that question of like what's going up in its place right um and i don't know if that's what you're getting at but (laughs) i think about that a lot um i guess let me let me poke at this a little bit um i feel like in recent years uh kind of Du Boisian radicalism has become very fashionable, (laughs) especially among a certain class of, um, uh, you know, powerful white people, you know, (laughs) like economically and socially powerful. Um, Is that, I mean, I mean, I assume you're skeptical of that. (laughs) I'm skeptical of it all, if I'm honest. Yeah, for sure. I'm skeptical of of an overemphasis of, I love how we just call it the Boisean and, and, and Washingtonian. We'll just call it that for the <laughs> The um, I'm, a, I'm skeptical of, of, of us ex- being 
um, extremists on both sides. Because yeah. I do think yeah. there are people who are who are too conservative. It's like they want to preserve dead bodies, and it's like no, it's the thing is dead. There's nothing yeah. to preserve there. <laughs> like we need to, to your point, tear down in order to rebuild. I think sure. the the tension is is that those who tend to be more radical revolutionary um, ha- are have anti vision. They can point out problems and mm-hmm. they can tear things down, but they're not visionaries and thinking of like, well, because they know how to point out all of the ills of the world. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, the, the solutions can be s- s- unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side, I do think there's a tendency for conservative folks who are too conservative to be too slow and yeah. uh, too cautious. And as they say, you get paralysis by analysis or analysis uh, paralysis by analysis and yeah. you know and you, you don't get the work done because you're you're overanalyzing or you're you're you're, you're too afraid and, and your calculations can actually become cowardice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh but i i will say this i do think this is a this is a very fashionable moment in life to be an advocate and an ally for black people and I am all for advocacy. I'm all for allyship. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you have to ask the right questions. Yeah. Um, not just about talking. And this is Black people as well. Like, it's not just, mm-hmm. you know, because I find it more, you know, I, I, I get a little, I get pushed back. I find it to a lot of our issues to be more class issues than racial issues. Hello, thank you so much for listening to Changed My Mind. I will get right back to that conversation you were just listening to. Uh, But before we do that, I wanna talk real quick about the Patreon. We are a listener supported show. The donations are what keep the lights on. They help me pay my editor and my executive producer. And they are what keep this sort of thoughtful conversation online for listeners to hear. Um, If you go to patreon.com slash change my mind, that's P-A-T, reon.com slash changed my mind. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Once you start supporting at $3 or more, benefits start kicking in. You'll get early access to episodes. And if you support at $5 or more, you will become a producer for the show, uh, which basically means that I'm going to shout you out at the end of every episode. And also, you can come to our strategy meetings on Zoom every month if you want. You, um, don't have to talk if you don't want to. You can just be a fly on the wall and see how the magic happens uh, or see how the sausage is made, as the case may be. Um, so if you like this show and you like what I'm doing, please consider going online to patreon.com slash change my mind and becoming a supporter. Thanks again to all our listeners and supporters. I really appreciate you. And I will flip you right back over to that conversation you were just listening to. Yeah, I don't think every racial issue is uh, needs to be solved with a racial answer. Like, I, I think there are some, you know, um, I heard somebody talk about, I can't remember who it was, but like, there's an example of you go to a particular neighborhood and you find, uh, I, I may butcher it, so I'm just going to kind of just make up my own analogy because I know where I'm going, so... You go to a particular neighborhood and you find that there's not a lot of flautists in in this mm. community, <laughs> and you're like, "Well, why isn't anybody playing the flute here?" You know, <laughs> this is this is, and then you can say, "Well, 
the black kids aren't playing the flute, but I can go down the street and I can find a whole bunch of white kids are playing the flute. <laughs> and then you can, from that, you can do, you can derive like, oh, this is a racial issue, mm-hmm. you know? And it very, mel- it very well may be some components of a racial issue. However, it could also be that those black kids just don't find the flute to be interesting. Mm-hmm. They're, mm-hmm. they're finding that there's probably more kids who want to play the bass. They want to play a, the saxophone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is because of how they grew up. They probably grew up listening to more, you know, jazz that is sax heavy or, mm-hmm. you know, bass guitar. Um, they probably go to churches where the bass is more prevalent. Um, except, you know, just fill in the blank where these other kids grew up listening to flutes and violins or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, my daughter who, you know, I would say I'm middle class. She grew up, she wants to play the violin. I'm like, you sure you don't want to play <laughs> a folk instrument? Something like that. You can get some vocal, you get the stink face. You can't get the stink face playing the violin. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, but you know, that's, so that's a, that's a, that's an interest, which means it could be a class issue versus uh, a racial issue. And oftentimes what we do is we'll look at issues like that. And we'll also, we'll immediately say, well, we have to address it with a racial solution. Mm-hmm. And I think that's somewhat immature. And, you know, we can, I am no, there, there are a lot of issues in which we can apply that to right or wrong, but I also try to stay in my lane. So, <laughs> um, so that's just an example. Hopefully that was helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to poke at sleeping bears here. Um, so <laughs> if I'm crossing lines, um, tell, tell me to stop. But I, I know that, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, uh, which was obviously horrific, um, you know, and there was the protest over racist cops and stuff. I think, a, you know, there were a handful of people who said, well, if you look at the numbers, like, it's not so much just black people getting killed by cops. The problem really is that cops can just kind of kill poor people with impunity. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, the real problem, of course, or the, in addition to that, the problem is that because of history and the way things are, black people are more likely on average to be poor. Um, Yeah, I do think there are, yeah. So, I mean, let me, I'll let you finish. I'm sorry, I don't know if you. Yeah, well, I I mean, I I was just going to say, I mean, I think um, Martin Luther King Jr., underwent a similar, you know, evolution of thinking in his life. Like he, you know, after the Civil Rights Act was passed and it was kind of, he was kind of like, things aren't really getting better. You know, he eventually fully embraced socialism because he, you know, he came to understand that a lot of it was just poverty. Um, Yeah. And I I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. I think there's, I think there are always, I think there's, it's interesting. Intellectuals find themselves, I think, honest. I hate to say it like that because I don't want to make it seem like certain everybody's dishonest. I do think there are some dishonest intellectuals out there who find it beneficial for them, their, their platform and their pocketbooks to stay in a particular place and to, 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 to perpetuate an argument and a belief because it's beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. But I do think that honest intellectuals, the more you dig into the racial animus in this country and the, the racial injustice in this country, you'll find, you, you see that they begin to become more soft to the, to the, to the, um, to the class argument than the, you know, than it's purely racial. 
mm. uh, because they recognize even the, they themselves, the more educated they get, they begin to leave a particular, uh, th- their interests change as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they remove themselves. Like I've always, I've always thought it was amusing the, some of the most brilliant black minds in our country talk about racial equality. And I'm like, well, why aren't you teaching at an HBCU? Like, I don't mm-hmm. think, like, why? <laughs> yeah. You're not an H- you know, it's because guess what? They don't pay as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and so I will say, yes, when it comes to the policing conversation, it's very complicated. I've actually moved a little bit more center as I was extremely left on this argument um i still believe in the uh well i believe in the um the defunding of police in the sense that i don't i think there are other ways and other components in which we can tackle policing in this country right i am i am fully for the abolishment of prisons mm-hmm. uh, i think we can do prisons totally different mm-hmm. um i do think there is still a racial component to our our policing however to your point it's not as detrimental as i think activists like to make it out to be mm. mm-hmm. and the other component to that is when you're in you know racially dense areas where the crime is you know if 90 percent or higher of the crime is performed are committed by and unto one particular people group mm-hmm. and you want to lower the violent crimes in that community how do you police that without being racially targeting if that right. makes sense yeah this is it's a very complicated it's a complicated thing like i i think about the neighborhood i live in is predominantly black and latino and uh all kinds of activities happen outside my you know down the street around my house and it's like well if we totally remove police presence that means we have to have a, a greater responsibility mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the, the civilians in this community and do we really want that? Do you have the bravery right. to actually walk up to the young man who's loud as all get out two o'clock in the morning, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with 16 of his friends in the middle of the street? It's mm-hmm. like, hey, guys, look, I recognize you. You know, you want to have fun, but it's two o'clock in the morning. A majority of the people on the street need to go to sleep, get to work. You know, what happens when that dude says, you know, fuck you, show, get out my face. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And if you don't get on my club, I'm gonna slap your bitch ass. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I got a decision to make. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I can either call the challenge room and say, you know what, no, you're not, or I have to walk away and say, you know what, well, they're just gonna be out here and enjoying themselves, and we just got to deal with it, or I can call the police. Mm-hmm. I've been in a situation. I've been in many situations like that. And I've yet to call the police because I'm just like, I don't want there to be an escalation of the issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I'm more noble or moral than the person who does call the police. Yeah. And so that's the that's the issue. Um, so, yeah, I do find that the policing issue is overdone sometimes. I think like that is not one of the greatest issues in our in the black community. Mm-hmm. We like to make it seem like it is. I feel a little weird talking about this to a white dude right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's all good. It's all good. I think we're mature. I think the, the world, and that's the other thing. I think the world is mature enough to recognize like, that these conversations are nuanced and black people aren't the only ones that can come up with healthy solutions for black people. I'll, I'll say that with confidence. I do mm. think that, um, you know, wisdom is dispersed to people. I speak to white issues every day. I'll speak to Latino. I'm like, hey, now, I don't speak with 
ultimate authority, but I'd give my opinion. So I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, I think this is maybe X, Y, and Z. And I, I feel like other people can speak to it as long as you speak to it with empathy, compassion, and humility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I think that's a lot of what we're lacking in our society. And to take it back to the Du Bois Booker T. Washington, I think that's what was lacked, especially from the Du Bois posture. It was like, no, this is matter of fact. And it's quite dangerous to actually throw in another little nugget there. Du Bois, I mean, Booker T, not only was he building institutions, he actually financially supported a lot of movements (laughs) that I guess you can say were antithetical to his. Hmm. Um, so I think that kind of speaks to how people can work together, even if they have philosophical differences on the race issue. And I think too, we're too busy posturing a lot in our society between left and right mm-hmm. and, uh, or black and white to actually come together and say, Hey, let's have some nuanced charitable discussions around the things that are plaguing our society. The other thing about the policing conversation that, <laughs> that I think could be quite shrewd and wise is that you made a statement about it's just not black people being like, if you look at the numbers, obviously because of there's more white people in this country, more white people are killed per year by the police. But, you know, at a disproportionate amount, black people are, you know, however, if you, if you present the argument about, if you really want police change or police reform, don't make it a racial issue, make it a, an American issue. Right. We are we are killing way too many. It is unnecessary that mm. this amount of people are dying. Black, white, Latino, Native. It's just ridiculous. Why Why are we killing, and to your point, poor people with impunity. Like, why are poor people and why are people getting murdered at this rate? We need to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe to, maybe to try to bring it back to the, the Booker T thing a little bit. Do you... Um... I don't know. Do you see value in trying to build more community-based policing institutions or? Um, I, I don't know I, if I'm reaching to make that connection. I'm just. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I mean, it could be a reach. I'm just going to ask the question on community-based. I'm in, in regardless of his connection to Booker T. I will yeah. say this though. I do think, I think so. I've read books that say that, you know, some, some of that is, is helpful. It, you know, I, I've read people who say police just need to be abolished altogether. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. don't know that. I just like in my mind, I'm like, I just don't know how you yeah. exist in in dense areas, black or white or Latino mm-hmm. or whatever, without having some form of, I just use the word policing. It just, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, when, because- when the defund the police thing is framed in terms of we're sending police to take care of too many like small time domestic disputes and we need to yeah. get more social workers out there instead of the police. It's like, yeah, that that sounds good. Right. When, Absolutely. when it's framed as like we just need to get rid of the police altogether. It's like, well, OK, but, you know, there are people yeah. be, there are people out there being victimized by criminals. And, you know, a right. lot of those people are black people and people of color as well. And, Absolutely. You know, like- and that's it. A- <laughs> That's the issue is that we we think it's just white people doing it unto the, like no like it black people are being victimized and so if we're really concerned about the well being of black people then we also need to be concerned with how do we protect them right and uh, are there real legitimate solutions and you know there are some out there I also think the way that we, if we can minimize police interaction I think that's helpful like traffic stops like I just mm-hmm. don't think yeah 
police officers need to be handling that. Like, mm-hmm. um, I think some of our traffic laws are ridiculous, but I do, you know, and a lot of this is economic stuff. It's yeah. just how is how are cities making money? Yeah. Yeah, well, and when it's, you know, when you use the police as a means of generating revenue, right, like if you send them out there to shake people down, it's like, who are they going to be shaken down, you know, the poor people, the people who have no voice, you know, absolutely, Um, absolutely. And then when you intensive, like you say, these poor people who are already agitated, because one, they're probably, they're poor, they have bad narratives of leadership in their, their communities. They know that the risk of a, a ticket or a fine is greater than the person who gets pulled over in the suburbs. It's like, you know, you get a speeding circuit, and you're a middle class, upper middle class individual. It's like, oh, it's not going to ruin my life. But I'm in, the, I'm in the hood. I get a speeding ticket, you know, just $200. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. means, you know, that's a potential that I have to make some really serious decisions this month. Right. Or I get a warrant for my arrest. Then I get, a, you know, now I lose my job. Now I lose my. And so, you think about the intense interactions that people have in these communities. I'm like, how do we begin? How do we begin to to subsidize that, if you will? Sure. And uh, I think there are some good. There's some good conversation around that. I just don't know. I do think oftentimes the conversations can get a little ridiculous. I do think there. You know, yeah. I think there's a, a way to defund and a way to to transform how community policing is, our policing is done in communities and, and, and it'll change and shift narratives. All right. Well, um, I try to close out the conversation by asking people this, um, aside from your new beliefs themselves or aside from your new views themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? I've become a more compassionate and patient person. Good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I um I don't I don't assume the worst of of people mm-hmm. because they hold a particular belief mm-hmm. that I didn't hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to be more curious. I just try to ask more questions on why somebody believes it's a particular thing. And nine times out of ten, what you'll find is has nothing to do with the real intellectual wrestling. It's just a narrative that's been passed down to them and they've just mm-hmm. held on to it because it's sacred. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In order to maintain some sort of uh equity within a tribe. Yeah, I mean I, I keep hitting that thought in my head that, you know, the the revolutionaries and the small C conservatives or whatever, like maybe they both have a point. Like maybe they're just coming at reality from very different angles. Um and maybe maybe it's in everyone's interest to kind of try to synthesize their ideas and make, make them work together or whatever. Cause we're all revolutionaries and conservatives in some matter. Like mm-hmm. you're conservative about something and you're mm-hmm. revolutionary about something. And so you just have to figure out what that thing is tap into that so that you can better understand the person that you're ostracizing at the moment. All right. Well, I have three um, final questions. I try to ask all my guests. Um, this is, being this being a philosophy podcast, I try to poke at these questions of ontology, epistemology. Yeah, I think no Kant truth. was wrong. I, I don't really, I think, <laughs> you know, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, no, just um, whatever you have to say about these is fine. Um, so what is identity? How do you know your identity? Does everyone have an identity? What do you think? Okay, everybody, absolutely everyone has 
an identity. The, the question would be, is do they understand who has helped shape that identity? Like who's helped formed that identity? What are the, the mechanisms that got you to where you are? And even if you don't think of yourself as some sort of identified individual, you are something to somebody and you, you operate the way you work, the way you live, the way you talk, the way you love, the way you hate isn't it's an identifier of what you believe and who you are um what identity is to me is um it's the makeup of how you for some reason live work and play is coming to my head but it's the yes it's, yeah, it's, it's identifier of how you operate in society um yep i'm gonna go with that <laughs> sure i'm gonna stick with that i'm gonna stick with that all right um, second, what is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? Mm. <laughs> I am, uh, yeah, I am going to say that. Uh, so the first question was, what is human nature? Are we all alike? Are we blank slates? Yeah. Are we, are we alike? Are we different? Are we just blank slates? Well, yeah, I would say that um, <clears throat> I would say that my posture in this question is that we are not all the same. I think the the body, the brain, the body isn't it. It holds memories, mm -hmm. um, and you think about the moment, even while you're in the the womb. There are things that are being transmitted to you. Hmm. Uh, the moment you exit the womb, so there, so right there, we're different. But the moment you exit the womb, you're exiting into different circumstances than another individual. Um, you're probably exiting with more stress. You're probably exiting with joy. You're probably exiting in a different social status. You're you're exiting with multiple parents. You're probably exiting with one parent. You're exiting with all these different things and all those types of triggers those <laughs> those uh material neurons i don't know if that's even those are those are shaping you and making you into a particular person and so um i don't know what human nature is off the top i'll probably leave that one alone but i will say that i do think we are we are entering at some point yes we're probably blank states but not by the point we exit the womb by the point you exit the womb you are something there's been you've been there's something on your your human contract that helps navigate some of the things that you're going to experience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think the the journey of life is how to manipulate those um, those formations into into things that you find beneficial for your flourishing throughout mm -hmm. your life. Okay. All right. Um, and finally, what is truth? How do you know truth? How do you know when you found truth? What do you think? <laughs> now I feel like I haven't been, I need to, I need to get more of my philosophy. I feel like I need to go read some <laughs> Aristotle now. Like I feel like oh, I've been slacking. Um, <laughs> so many, I want a name drop right now, but it's nothing's coming to mind. <laughs> 
So, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, you know, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go with the easy answer for me as the, the difficult answer for, in academia, the easy answer in my church. <laughs> 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 to me, I will say truth is, um, is the creator. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that the, that, that God has given us a truth um, about ourselves and about him. I think there are different ways to view and interpret different realities in which we, you know, different realities or different experiences we have. Um, and oftentimes we call those truths, which I don't, you know, I'm not offended by, you know, my truth, his truth. Because mm-hmm. ultimately what they're saying is my reality, my experience. And, I, and I'm fine with that because you and I can walk into, you know, the Bible itself is literature that speaks of a different reality from, um, let's say, um, the, uh, I forgot the name of the religion, but, uh, the you know, for instance, the flood, Gilgamesh is a mm-hmm. different perspective from what Noah um and that's not to say that the Bible is necessarily wrong, but what it is saying is like maybe two people experienced the same event and they wrote about it differently. Mm-hmm. And my posture is to say that the God of Moses and you know Daniel and David is the one who controlled that particular event to happen. And so therefore, things that he has passed down to us, the truths. The, the big truths that he's given us are the truths in which we are to live by. Um, that's, yeah. that's where I am. That's where I That's, that's pretty good. I'll, that's pretty I'll good. Say. I dig it. Yeah. All right. Well, show, thank you so much uh, for coming on the program. Um, been a joy, been a joy. Uh, before we go, do you want to tell people where they can find you, where they can find your work? Yes, um, I think on all social media platforms, uh, well, I know on Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at A-M-I-S-H-O, Amisho Baraka, B-A-R-A-K-A. And on Facebook, it's just Show Baraka, S-H-O-B-A-R-A-K-A. And uh, my website is barakaology.com. So. All right. Well, this has been Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. You can email the show at changemymindpod at gmail.com. Find it on Twitter at changemindpod. And you can find me at Luke T. Harrington. And I will see you all next time. There's a tweet I keep seeing getting passed around the internet. Um, It's something that, you know, it's a dialogue, uh, one of those dialogue format tweets where it says them, colon, you'll get more conservative as you get older. Uh, And then it says me as I get older. And there's like a picture of a guy doing some sort of, you know, pagan ceremony or something like that. I assume it was a pagan. I assume it's supposed to be a pagan ceremony because the first place I saw it was shared on like a pagan Facebook page or something. Um, now, putting aside the uh, question of how in the world paganism can be less conservative than the status quo when paganism is itself much older than the status quo, putting aside that question, <laughs> I think that tweet kind of misses the point. Um, 
I mentioned this before that I read a lot of uh, Freddie DeBoer these days. He's a, a socialist blogger. Um, he published something a few weeks ago. Uh, you can find it on his Substack if you uh, care to find such things. Um, it's freddiedeboer.substack.com. Um, but what he said was, I, I think the title of it was something like, no, the youth are not going to save us or something like that. Um, you know, and what he was commenting on was that, yes, youth poll much more left-ish than the adults in their life, but so did every generation when it was college age. Um, and, you know, what he, what he goes on to say is, you know, he's, he's Gen X, he says, my generation, we were just as quote-unquote radical when we were in our 20s. And it's not like we're all conservative in the sense of being Republican. Now we're not like reading National Review and voting Trump and that sort of thing. Um, although some of them obviously are. Um, but he, he said, you know, we're conservative in our behavior, which is almost more important, right? We've gone on to working careers and taking care of families and, you know, getting distracted by life uh, from, you know, the project of revolution, as it were, um, or something, something like that. Um, now, a while ago, I had um, Walter Ben Michaels on the show, uh, another college professor, socialist type figure. Uh, it was an interesting episode. You should uh, go back and listen to it. Dropped back in November, um, and something he said to me that I really identified with was, you know, the last time I felt even a little bit optimistic <laughs> about the political future of this country was when uh, Bernie Sanders was very close to winning the 2016 democratic primary. Um, and I remember kind of feeling the same way. And, you know, I mean, we all know how that turned out. Um, <laughs> suddenly, uh, Donald Trump was in the white house and the Republican party had seemingly gone completely insane. Um, and I will tell you how I reacted to that development. I got the heck out of the red state I lived in. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was in, I was in Oklahoma at the time. Um, and you know, we had a, had a very good opportunity to, uh, move to Wisconsin, uh, which is, you know, more of a purple state, I guess. Um, and it wasn't so much fundamentally that, you know, I, I need to run away from Republicans or I need to, um, give up on improving the world so much as just the realization that, you know, nothing is going to get better anytime soon. You know, um, the middle class is going to continue going down the tubes and healthcare costs are going to continue to spiral out of control. And in the meantime, I need to take care of my own family. You know, um, the main reason we were able to move here was because my wife had this incredible job offer. Uh, and it, you know, paid very well and came with what you might call a Cadillac health insurance plan, um, for all of us. Um, and it was just kind of the realization that, yeah, this is something we need to do regardless of what's going on in the world. Um, and that tends to be how it goes. You, uh, you have your ideals, um, and then life happens and you have to choose between your ideals and, what you need to do for the people around you. Um, and honestly, maybe that's okay. 
because if history has shown anything, it's that revolutionaries, when they win, tend to prove themselves lousy at governing. Anyway, that's it for this week. If you like the show, if you like what I'm doing, please take a second to go on Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star review. Tell the whole world how great I am. If you want to support me financially, quick plug, there is a Patreon. I have talked about it already in the show, but here it is again. You go to patreon.com slash changed my mind and you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. For $3 a month, you get early access to episodes. For $5 a month, you get access to yours truly, along with my producer. We have a monthly strategy meeting on Zoom. It's great. You should come. Once again, you can email the show at changedmymindpod at gmail.com. Would love to hear your thoughts on this or anything else. Uh, You can find the show on Twitter at changedmindpod or find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington. Would love to hear from you there. While I'm thinking of it, please check out my Substack. Substack is a blogging and newsletter service. Uh, I am giving away both my books to everyone who signs up to receive my posts in their email. I post about once a month. I write about whatever's on my mind, usually horror fiction or musicals or the publishing industry, and sometimes all three at once. Um, The latest post, in fact, is a post about the musical Little Shop of Horrors, which is a horror musical, and how it taught me about writing and revising a story. Um, So yeah, luketharrington.substack.com. Go there and read it and sign up to get e-copies of both my published books. Change My Mind is produced by Tamar Harrington. If you would like to be a producer, check out the Patreon. Our executive producer is Blake Collier. Our editor is Jonathan Clausen. And we are presented by the Raven Creek Social Club. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And please don't be afraid to change your mind. Your mind.